see a number of young parents here, and uh, you're doing a great job. So if kids get a little squiggly, don't worry about it. Uh, we all understand. Uh, proud of you. Um, what a joy to be here today and to have this opportunity to talk, or at least for me to talk and for you to listen, about uh, one of the verses that have meant nearly more to me than any other verse that I've had to wrestle with in pastoral ministry these past 12 years. So that's where we're going to go in a few minutes. I want to begin by just reminding you that these past few months, we've all gotten a, a crash course in essential versus non-essential. Uh, as the country went under lockdown, we learned that grocery stores are essential and Nail salons, contrary to what some people might think, are in fact non-essential. And many of you had employers who had to wrestle with, right, who's essential in such a way that they need to come and be here so that the operations of this company can go forth, and who needs to stay at home? Who can do their job at home? Essential, non-essential. Well, the, the past few months, our own church has had to think through what is essential and what is not essential. The moment we were able to meet again, we weren't scratching our head thinking, well, should we do Wednesday night or Sunday-morning? No, we knew that, that, that this is our Hebrews 10.25 moment, if you will. This is the, the not forsaking of ourselves together, the not forsaking of our assembling together. Uh, this is that time. Now, of course, some cannot be with us right now, and they ha may have concerns about their own health, about the health of those around them. And during this strange season, you know, we all need to go to the Word. We need to seek biblical counsel. Uh, we need to make the best decision that we can make. But the fact remains that gathering as a church is an essential part of being a church. It's essential to to, to who we are. But this morning, I, I don't want to speak about the gathering. There are other essential practices that we must not ignore, practices that can continue in the midst of whatever is going on around us. We are to be disciples every day. And one of the essential duties of being a disciple is making disciples. Disciple-making is an essential part of the Christian life. It's a non-negotiable. Christians are called to make disciples. Matthew 10, 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's Jesus instructing His disciples who became the church planters of the early church, who passed along this great commission to the earliest Christians and now to us. And evangelism is only the, the beginning, right? We're to, we're to live out the great commission every day. So uh, Friday, uh, Pat Knowles and I had lunch. Uh, we were, uh, I can't guarantee it was exactly six feet, but it was outside and uh, at a distance. We could not eat with our masks. 
but we were there, and we were together. And uh, Pat is a brother in Christ that I've known for a dozen years. And when we get together, there are times, because Pat is the chairman of the elders and the, the one who basically sets the agenda of the elders' meetings, we often meet and we talk about elder stuff, but there are times when we say, okay, we're, we're really not here to talk about elder stuff. We're here to talk about our souls. And so Pat will ask me, Aaron, how are you doing spiritually? How's your marriage? How are your kids? And what he's doing is he's striving to make sure that I, as a Christian, am obeying everything Jesus commanded. That's what he's doing, being very deliberate about it. In that sense, he's discipling me. It's, and it's, it's, that, it's that simple. This kind of relationship is, is fundamental to the Christian life. And I don't know how to be any clearer than that. It is just fundamental to what it means to be a Christian, to have people in your life who are going to say, how are you doing spiritually, and so forth and so on. And it's not just for new Christians. It's for old Christians. And it's not just for church members. It's for elders. It's for the senior pastor. It's for everyone who's a believer. And so you've often heard me say that every believer should be personally and regularly and deliberately helping another believer grow in Christ-likeness. And in the context of a local church like ours, especially those within the local body of Christ. Now, some of you are ready to pour into others. It's not that you deny your own need for encouragement, but you recognize your ability to pour into others. And some of you are thinking, I really need someone to pour into me. I don't feel like I really have much to pour into others. I don't have much Christian experience or knowledge of the Bible. Well, wherever you are, the point is we all need people to pour into and people to pour into us. Now, much of what I am going to say to you today, I have said before. And in fact, the basic bones of this sermon were given to you a number of years ago. But since our church schedule has largely been uprooted, and since many of us are seeing less of one another than perhaps we ever have before. It seems wise for me to remind you of your calling to be a disciple maker every day of the week. Now, I want you to see this in the Bible. And we're going to spend most of our time in Hebrews chapter 3. But if you would, let's start in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1. The author of Hebrew writes, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Stop right there. This is a letter written to the early church, written to Jewish background believers. Uh, it's written to those who really were tempted to throw in the towel, to drift away from the faith. And in fact, some of them were in that process. They're in the process of drifting away when God in His providence brought this letter to their attention. The author of Hebrews tells them to stand firm, 
How were they to stand firm? Notice the specific instruction in verse 1. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. They needed to focus. They needed to fix their eyes on the gospel. Right? The gospel is what they heard. So when they were on the cusp of drifting away, what did they need to do? They needed to pay much more careful attention to the gospel. Someone who's about to get seasick needs to open his eyes and fix them on the horizon. I know from much personal experience that that is true. Someone about to fall asleep at the wheel needs to open his eyes and keep them fixed on the road in front of him. Someone about to drift away from the faith needs to open his eyes or her eyes and fix them on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember who Jesus is. Remember what he's done. Right? Go back to the basics. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying there. And in fact, that's what the author then leads them in. He, he, he leads them in this process of remembering what they heard when they were first saved. Right? Starting in verse 14, after describing the, the divine sovereignty of Jesus in verses 5 through 13, the author unpacks the atoning work of Christ in verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In verse 14, the author begins by speaking of the incarnation of Christ, the Son of God, partook of flesh and blood just like us. Jesus did not lose his divinity in the incarnation, but he added our humanity. He is fully God, and he became, he was fully God, and he became both fully God and fully man. And Jesus took on this flesh, not only so that he could live a perfect life in our place, but so that he could die a real death in our place. Right? This is how God chose to conquer the work of Satan through the death of Jesus. Some have asked, well, could God have done it another way? It seems like an awfully messy and bloody way to accomplish the salvation of the world. Well, the late J.I. Packer once said, well, of course not. This is the way God revealed that he would do it in his scripture, and therefore this is the only way. God made a way through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. But in, in, in order to die, Jesus had to first be fully human. And so what a remarkably wonderful way to remind someone of what they've heard. You know, we get so accustomed, like, of course, Jesus is fully God and fully man. There's no of, of course about it. This is an amazing miracle. And so the author of Hebrews reminds them of, of that. And when Jesus died, what did he do? But he, he brought 
freedom. Freedom to sinners enslaved to sin. He brought deliverance, verse 15, to all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We were born enslaved to sin. Natural born sinners. That was our, our status as, 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 as men and women, as, as babies, born enslaved to sin. Yes, made in the image and likeness of God, but walking around in the ways of the devil. And Christ's death set us free from that slavery, from that bondage. That's what he's saying. Look again at verse, at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus made propitiation on the cross. That is a technical way of saying that Jesus' death on the cross took the wrath of God that his people so rightly deserved. He became a propitiation, a wrath-absorbing substitute for us. To be set free from the bondage of your sin, your sin must first be punished. Right? The, for, for those of you who have a mortgage, the house is not yours until the mortgage has been paid. Salvation isn't yours until your sin, which is a debt you owe to God, until your sin is paid for. That's all he's saying here. Christ paid for the sins of his people. That's what happened on the cross. He bore the penalty for our sin. He bore the wrath that we deserved. He made propitiation for the sins of his people. So don't forget Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. That's the message that we have heard. It's the crosswork of Christ. We need to dig into this message. We need to understand it better. We need to appreciate it more, right? I'm going to talk for a fair bit about what you are to do as a Christian. Disciple-making. But never forget, the heart of Christianity is not about what you do for God. It's what God did for you. Hebrews chapter 2. So Jesus is like an older brother who gave up his bed so that you could have a soft and comfortable place to sleep. Jesus is like a loving mother who gave up her dinner so that you would have wonderful food to eat. Jesus is like a strong father who gave up his life so you could be set free. Right? Regardless of how fractured America is, you, Christian, don't need to be worried, distraught, undone, hopeless. Hope doesn't come from politicians. It doesn't come from scientists. Joy doesn't come from vaccines, although I've never in my life wanted a vaccine more. But joy does not come from vaccines or herd immunity, which I didn't even know what that was before. A growing economy. Your kids going to school. 
Our joy does not come from any of those things. Our hope and joy is in the name of the Lord. What in the world are we doing gathering every Sunday, singing all these songs, were it not for the fact that our hope, our joy is in the name of the Lord? So to those of you who are unbelievers, to those of you who may never have submitted your life to Christ, you need salvation. That is what you need. Don't need a vaccine. Don't need to hurt immunity. You need salvation. You need to be saved. Yes, we are one of those churches. We think you're going to hell unless you submit your life to Jesus Christ. Jesus is your only hope, your only source of security, the only way you could ever have the sins that you know you commit paid for is through the work of Jesus Christ. If you're an unbeliever, I know you've never experienced the kind of joy that I'm talking about because the kind of joy I'm talking about can only be experienced by individuals who truly recognize that Jesus did for them what they could never do for themselves. There's no joy like that joy. The joy of knowing real happiness is found in the joy of knowing the inextinguishable love of God. Do you know there's verses in the Bible that say that the believer is filled with the fullness of God? I can't even begin to unpack for you what exactly Paul means by that in Ephesians. But that's the kind of joy the believer has. I guarantee when you are filled with the fullness of God, global calamities seem a lot smaller. Now, I'm about to talk about disciple-making, but for any of that to make sense, you've got to be a disciple. A disciple is simply someone who follows a teacher. That's it. A disciple is someone who follows a teacher. Though I teach, fundamentally I'm not your teacher, Christian. Christ is our teacher. A disciple is someone who follows Christ. A teacher who laid down his life for his students. Submit to him today. Do it. Maybe you've been a believer for a number of years, but for some reason, on July 19th, 2020, your heart is cold to the Lord. I'm not saying you're an unbeliever. But even now, before I say another sentence, would you just stop and pray, God, soften my heart. Warm it. Melt it so that the rest of this morning as I'm listening to this sermon, I can be affected by it the way I need to be affected by it. Pray that even now. All right, that takes us to chapter 3. Look how it begins. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him, who appointed him, that's the Father, just as Moses also is faithful in all God's house. So verse 1 says, consider Jesus. All right, think about him. Understand him. That seems very parallel to what we saw in chapter 2, verse 1, right? We're to pay much more closer attention to what we have heard. That's a lot like consider Jesus. So the author is, is going back to that theme. You need to consider Jesus. You need to make much of him. You need to trust him. And again, as I mentioned, introducing our scripture reading for today, these Jewish background believers who grew up steeped in Judaism, they made so much of Moses that when Christians began receiving persecution, their temptation was to turn to other sources of solace and comfort, whether that was, in their opinion, the angelic world, or whether it was the law, or particularly the giver of the law in the man Moses. 
And so in chapter 3, verses 2 through 6, the author is clarifying that Jesus is so much better than Moses. Don't go there. Now here's where things really get interesting. Right, drop down to verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, as you can tell in your Bibles, what I just read to you is a, a quotation, right? Uh, the, the, the author of Hebrews is citing the Old Testament. And in particular, he's citing a passage from Psalm 95. And that the author of Psalm 95 is summarizing an event that took place in the days of Moses. When Moses led the people out of Egypt through the wilderness, wilderness, right up to the edge of the promised land. Now, during this journey, God proved himself to be entirely reliable, and unfortunately, the people refused to follow God. Verse 8 says they hardened their hearts. They hardened their hearts. What does that mean? Well, they rebelled against him. How do you know your heart is hard? You're rebelling against God. Very straightforward. Verse 11 shows God's response to their hardening of their hearts and their rebellion against him. In response, God refused to let them enter into the land, right? He said no. And that word rest in verse 11 signifies the land. The land was a place of rest. And God said, you cannot enter my rest. Now, God all these years had been so faithful. He'd freed them from Pharaoh. He'd provided them manna and water and, and meat. He gave them his law. That was a very special thing for the people of Israel to get the law. Uh, that was a gift from God. That, that law was a way for God to say, you are my people. And from now on, you're going to follow my ways. You're not going to live like the Egyptians. You know, you're going to live like the Israelites. You're going to live like my people. He gave them his law. And yet, even though God, through Moses, brought them all the way to the edge of the promised land where they were finally going to have rest, they were too afraid to follow God's directive and enter into it. They hardened their heart. They rebelled. God punished them, and the whole generation turned around and died in the desert. And I'm thinking about, for, like, right now, in my flesh, 2021 feels like the promised land. I know that nothing, I have no expectation of anything magical happening on January 1. But in my little finite mind, I feel like that's the promised land, you know? And if I, if I may, if God, you know, if I'm alive, like December 31 or whatever, I'm like ready to go in. But what if all of a sudden, I don't want to go in. I'm afraid that 2021 is going to be even worse. There's going to be like, a novel, novel virus. You know, how silly would that be? Multiply that by a thousand, a hundred thousand. You have a picture of the insanity, but not insanity, sin of the people of Israel. Now, the, this is so important for you to know 
that the author of Hebrews tells us again. Look down there at um, verse 15. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Yeah, back to Psalm 95. Verse 16, for <clears throat> who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now, <clears throat> some of you are thinking, like, Aaron, this is ancient history. Like, Aaron, thank you. I know it's in the Bible. It's the Word of God. I know it's good for me. But man, this is ancient history. Why are you camping out here? You're talking to me about people who died thousands of years ago. Meanwhile, I'm worried about my health. I'm worried about getting someone else sick. And I'm worried about being furloughed. I'm worried about racial reconciliation and what that looks like for my life and how it affects me. Aaron, I've got issues and you're talking to me about a lot of dead people. Okay. But go back to verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. The author of Psalm 95 was speaking to living people when he wrote Psalm 95, pointing them back to the rebellion of the people in the wilderness. And the author of Hebrews is pointing people back to Psalm 95, who's pointing people back to the wilderness, saying, today, Christian, when you hear the word of God preached, when the God is speaking to you through his word, don't harden your heart the way they did in the rebellion. This passage is for us, Hebrews 4.12. Not ironically, just a few verses later, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Like that's what, he's talking about the Bible. The Holy Spirit speaks to every generation afresh. Not new revelation. Don't misunderstand me. Not new revelation. Like we have a canon of Scripture. But is it an end? I mean, look, if it were otherwise, wouldn't I just get up here and like hit play from a sermon? Like, guys, today we're going to hear Charles Spurgeon preaching from Hebrews 3. Like, better sermon. But every generation comes to the same Bible and the Holy Spirit speaks through this Bible today that our hearts might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Today. This passage is for you and for me and for all of us tempted to let the condition of the world harden our own hearts against God. For those of us tempted to doubt God. For those of us tempted to say, God, can you really? I mean, I prayed for an end to COVID-19. And like there were, I'm just, I'm not a prophet, maybe two or three of you. What in the world are you doing? Does he need know science? Anyone doubting that God is able to put an end to a pathogen? So anyone doubting that God cares? God, do you really care about this world that you made? It's a mess. Like, did you go to sleep? What, what are you doing? God, I'm, I'm not sure I can handle another event being canceled. 15 was enough. 
God, I've been waiting for friends for so many years. I finally joined a church. I, I finally joined a church, and then all the meetings stopped. And then I can't even recognize anybody because they're wearing masks. God, don't you care about my, my friendships? God, I just retired, and now I'm sick. How could this be? God, how could you let me lose my job? I mean, I could have done so much with that income, so many good things for the kingdom, and yet I've lost my job. And so my point is that every Christian has questions like this at times. Every Christian is tempted to doubt God's goodness, God's love, God's care for us, and sometimes, sometimes even tempted to doubt the truth and the reality of the gospel. The author of Hebrews knows this. And sometimes, instead of, instead of like very quickly responding and leaning back into the gospel, instead of rolling up our sleeves and digging into God's word, we, we just hit autopilot. I know there are planes that land themselves. The pilot locks in the coordinates and the computer takes over. And, and, and I know that sometimes Christians do this. Right? Instead of wrestling with the Lord, Instead of being honest about your own doubts and about your own frustrations, about your own weaknesses, about your own sins, you just kind of hit autopilot. Uh, I know there's a few things I can do that are going to look very Christian, and I'm just going to keep at those things. And all the while, while you've got your finger on autopilot, you're simultaneously hardening, hardening your own heart to the Lord, and you've, you've lost real communion with God. There's a description that a couple of authors made about this kind of Christian, a, a, a Christian whose life makes one wonder if he or she really is a Christian. But this, listen to what they wrote. They say, such lives fail to produce the expected fruit of faith. I'm talking about autopilot Christian lives, okay? Such lives fail to produce the expected fruit of faith. Their lives are not characterized by peaceful, loving relationships, a sweet, natural, day-by-day -day worship of the Lord, a wholesome and balanced relationship to material things, and ongoing spiritual growth. Instead, these believers leave a trail of broken relationships, a knowledgeable but impersonal walk with God, a struggle with material things, and a definite lack of personal growth. Something is wrong with the harvest. It contradicts the faith that is supposed to be its source. And so my question is, is that you? As I, as I read aloud that paragraph of a, of a Christian life on autopilot, is that you? As I spoke about a few months ago, how, what's the condition of the spiritual rooms in your life? Are there any signs of revival in, in, in your heart? I so appreciated Pat asking me on Friday, Aaron, have you seen the Lord at work in your own heart? Have you experienced any of the revival you've been preaching about and praying for? The author of Hebrews is warning, warning us. He's saying, don't let this be you. Don't harden your heart. He's calling us to self-examination. Look at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart 
leading you to fall away from the living God. In other words, be humble enough to recognize this could be you. Right? You aren't too good to fail. Talk about businesses that are too big to fail. Right? You're not too good to fail. None of us in this room is too good to fail. You need to examine your heart. We all do. Now, where do we go from here? Now, here's where I say, please don't look at your Bible. Please don't look at verse 13. Some of you are rebelling and you're looking at verse 13. <laughs> right? Given everything that we've heard so far, what do you think the author would say next? What, what word does the Holy Spirit have for us? Having just told us to examine our hearts, right, to see if there be any evil unbelievingness in our own hearts, what would you expect the Holy Spirit to, to do next, to say next? Now, I'd expect, like verse 13, I always hate to put it this way, but if I were writing the Bible, verse 13 would be, consider Jesus. Right? Look to Jesus. Run to the cross. Make much of Jesus. You know, pay more careful attention to what you've heard. I mean, that's what I would expect. If, if I were writing the Bible and I would just said, examine your own heart, now get your eyes off of yourself and look to Jesus, that's not what the Spirit says in verse 13. Now the obedient of you can look. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, which means basically as long as we're alive on this earth, as long as it's called today, right? Every day, as long as we're alive, exhort one another that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I have to confess that this verse never fails to surprise me. We are the weapons forged by God to protect one another from falling into sin. We are the tools God has designed to lead one another into greater degrees of sanctification. We are the ropes woven by God to bind one another up and keep us from drifting away. The Bible doesn't just point us to Christ, Hebrews 2. It tells us to point one another to Christ, Hebrews 3. The Bible doesn't just say pay more careful attention to what we have heard, Hebrews 2, 1. The Bible tells us to encourage one another with the gospel, Hebrews 3, 13. We're to exhort one another every day. We're to make disciples of one another, teaching one another to obey everything that Jesus commanded. We're to get into each other's lives and encourage one another to grow in the faith. As a young Christian, I have to confess that I found this pretty strange. So I want to speak to, to those of you who at times find this pretty strange, and, and even, through, even to those of you who have friends who find our church pretty strange. Uh, over the years, I've, I've heard people say, this is kind of an awkward place for someone who like, really isn't taking the Lord seriously. You know, uh, maybe another way to put it, a technical place, a technical way to put it would be, this is an un uncomfortable place for a nominal Christian. Because when you find that it doesn't take very long at Mount Vernon before someone walks up to you and says, how are you doing spiritually? What did you get out of the message? I mean, if you're not someone who's accustomed to other people engaging you in that, dare I say, spiritual dimension, it can be a bit off-putting. When I was a young believer, 
I moved to Eugene, Oregon to go to college. And, and clearly, I found a, a, a church in Eugene, and um, I, uh, I was a young believer, and the college pastor clearly knew I was a young believer, and he said, hey, would you like to meet? I could come to campus, and we could talk about the Bible together. I found that very odd. I had never experienced anything like that, but I'm a new believer. He seemed like a nice guy. I guess this is what we do, so I said, okay. Right? He brought me a little orange Bible study booklet, and I was to fill it out, was to answer the questions. I filled my pieces out, uh, portions out. He had his own orange booklet. I think I told you before, he didn't do his homework. I was a little offended. I did my work. He didn't do his work. I was very new to Christianity. I didn't realize he kind of already knew the answers. He discipled me. He poured into me. He spent time with me. I thought it was kind of weird, but God used those meetings to encourage me to follow Jesus. Right, there are, I know that there's lots of kids in this room. I know that there are kids who are watching at home. Uh, you need your parents. Kids, you, you need your parents. Right? You need to learn things from your parents, like how to read and how to ride a bike and how to fold your clothes. Right? If you haven't learned how to fold your clothes, ask your parents, like this afternoon, Mom, Dad, would you help me learn how to fold my clothes? We need parents to teach us things. And, and kids, uh, your parents need you to teach them things, like how to download an app. You, know, you can help them, or, or how to do the floss dance, right? Your parents need you to teach them things as well. We all need people to show us the way. And the same is true for Christianity, and that's what I want all of you to see. It is not a Sunday morning thing. Every day, we are to be helping one another follow Jesus every day. And so this is how... I define disciple-making as personally, regularly, and deliberately helping another believer grow in Christ-likeness. And I get that definition, at least the adverbs, I get that definition from Hebrews 3.13. Disciple-making needs to be personal. In verse 13, we're told to exhort one another Right? I, I'm helped by my own Bible reading. I'm helped by, well, this sounds funny, I'm helped by my preaching. <laughs> I'm certainly helped by all the labor that goes into the messages. I'm helped by that. I'm helped by Christian books. All of this is valuable, but there is nothing like another believer coming into your life, coming alongside me and teaching me and encouraging me to observe everything that Jesus commanded. There's nothing like a person reaching out to me and reminding me that following Jesus is worth it. It doesn't matter if you are an extrovert or an introvert. You need brothers and sisters in your life willing to dig in and exhort you to grow in Christ's likeness. We need to one another one another. Say that really fast. We need to one another one another. Now, you may be tempted to put this one anothering on the back burner because of COVID-19. You can't. It's essential. It's not a get-to, it's a have-to. If you're a Christian, it's essential for your life. Now, look, it's not as easy right now. I, I get that. Uh, there's nowhere in the Bible that says Christianity is easy. 
In fact, Christianity is like carrying your cross and following Christ. Now, I don't want to imply that meeting with another believer is like death. But sometimes the type of relational engagement that the gospel compels us to is costly. It's not easy right now, but it's possible. Take a walk with another brother or sister. Sit outside and check in with another brother or sister. I met up with Hank Sturgis last week. I had my mask. He had his mask. We were definitely six feet apart because Hank is 99. And we encourage one another with the Word of God. I mean, Hank is teaching me how to die. Hank's doing fine. But he's 99, like closer to the end than the beginning. He's discipling me in the art of dying as a Christian. Who doesn't need that? If if you've got to, use Zoom or FaceTime or whatever other application you prefer. But remember, disciple-making needs to be personal. Now, second, disciple-making needs to be regular. Verse 13 says we're to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Now, I'm not so much digging into the every day, right? I could take that sort of woodenly. Don't let a 24-hour period go by without a kind of personal exhortation. But I think we get the point. There is a a day-by-dayness to the Christian life, something that goes beyond Sunday, right? Uh, I I think of Acts 2.46. And day by day, attending temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts. Day by day as long as it's called today, every day. So the fight for community cannot end on Sunday. And now more than ever, which is why I was so excited to to repeat this, now more than ever, with so much distance between so many of us, we have to find ways to be regularly in one another's lives, creative ways for this season. I know this is hard. Life is busy. The virus is real. But this is the Word of God, and we have to take it seriously. Perhaps you need to be more faithful to to send a daily text. I would not begin to think sending a text is like the, the obedience to this passage. But perhaps it's one small piece. Be more faithful to send a daily text, to to make a weekly phone call. Some of you hate talking to people on the phone. I get it, but you might have to die to that so that you can hear someone's voice and hear the intonation, the rise and the fall, a phone call. You may need to just put away your favorite show and allocate that time to a person who who needs you. Disciple-making needs to be regular. And third, disciple-making needs to be deliberate. I think this is the hardest part I think you can check the boxes on one and two, but I think this deliberate nature is what is so Christian and so sadly unusual in so many Christian circles. And I'm so thankful that it seems less unusual at Mount Vernon than I've ever experienced in my own life. And it shouldn't be unusual in in any Christian's life because notice what's at stake, verse 13. We're to exhort one another so that our hearts will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Again, we're all tempted to drift away. We're all tempted to become so preoccupied with our job or our family or our health or our future or just our own stuff 
going on inside our own hearts that we neglect the Lord. And before you know it, your heart is hardened to the things of God. Before you know it, weeks have gone by where you haven't really spent serious time with God. And maybe, and here's the crazy part, maybe you hardly notice. You just, it's almost like, wow, did, did that much time go by without me really wrestling with the Lord? You hardly notice. How is it that you could hardly notice? It's because sin is deceitful. Look, look, I'm, I'm not a medical doctor, but I know that cancer can live in your body for years before you ever notice it. And caught early, you can often attack it and get rid of it, but caught late, and it may very well kill you. And in that sense, it's, it's deceitful. Right? You may think everything's okay, but everything's not okay. You're, you're rotting on the inside. And the deceitfulness of sin is like that. The deceitfulness of sin is the problem. And daily exhortation is the answer. Daily exhortation from another brother or sister is the solution. What does this exhortation look like? Well, it may look like a word of encouragement from a brother or sister pointing out evidences of grace in your life. Uh, we need so much more of that. It may look like a word of challenge from a brother or sister who's just pointing out some sin in your life. It's all exhortation. I could talk more about what exhortation exactly is, but I just think in a nutshell, it's some combination, usually a little both, of both encouragement and challenge. And it's all for our good. The deceitfulness of sin is the cancer. Deliberate exhortation is the cure. And so do you see now why I define disciple-making as personally, regularly, and deliberately helping another believer grow in Christ-likeness? None of us is too good to fail. We, need it all, we all need to examine our hearts. We all need the help of others. Churches should be more than a refuge from the world. Churches should be more than a refuge from the world. They should be battle stations for holiness. That's what disciple-making does. It prepares us for the spiritual battle of life. And it's not just the work of pastors, and it's not just the work of elders. Hebrews 3.13 is a church-wide ministry, right? an essential ministry, a ministry for all of us who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and adopted into the family of God. So I'm putting Hebrews 3.13 before you this morning so that you see your responsibility to be part of the great disciple-making ministry that is the local church. In COVID season and out of COVID season, doesn't matter. Right, so what should you do next? Well, because I have more, I'm going to keep going. Let me leave you very quickly with six words of application. Parents, feel free to stand up and walk around. I'm not going to notice it all. Six words of application. First, make the most of our time together on the Lord's Day. I know this is hard right now. We aren't all here. We're separated at some level. We're wearing masks. We do need to keep our distance. But let me encourage you to use our time well together. Greet someone you don't know. Ask a few questions. What brought you to Mount Vernon? 
What did you think about the message? Are you a Christian? Seems like those are appropriate questions to ask people at a public gathering like ours. This small talk isn't small. It's an important part of relationship building. And Sunday allows us time not only to connect with those of you who are new, but for those of us who already know one another to check in with one another. Like we're here together, not under the best of circumstances, but we're here together. Let's make use of our time. Use the Lord's day well. Second, if you can, in other words, if you have them, lean into your spouse and your kids. If you have them, lean into your spouse and your kids. So I'm speaking to those of you who are married and or have kids. Nothing that I've just preached about disciple making is intended by me to lead you to neglect your family. If you're a young mom or a busy dad or a young dad and a busy mom or both, well, you can't be a mom and a dad, but you know what I mean. All this talk about disciple making can seem burdensome, like, oh no, you know, I feel like I can barely just do life. And now you're saying the, it's an essential part of being a Christian is making disciples. And like, yes, it's not me. I'm just reporting to you what the Bible says. That's true. I, I do want you to look outside your own family. I do want you to have a heart for the local church. That's important. Right? God's not going to command it if he doesn't want us to do it. That's the definition of a command. But the most important thing that you can do is pour into your spouse. Be in the Word. Encourage your spouse with the Word of God. Like that's, that is ground zero if you're married. Pour into those closest to you. Evangelize your children. Like the last thing I want you to do is like get all excited about being a disciple maker while you're neglecting the biblical foundation your children need to grow to know Christ. Like, we haven't had Sunday school for months. Our children's ministry has not slowed down one bit. Our children's ministry is not what happens downstairs. It's what happens in your living rooms, in the bedrooms of your children. Like, children's ministry is in full swing because we have parents who love the Lord and want to see their children love the Lord. And so you're evangelizing them at home and teaching them the Bible at home. There are seasons in life when you can't make as many disciples as you might want to make, when you can't pour into others with the, the rigor that you might like. And so I want to say, I understand that's true. Just don't use your family as an excuse to keep others at an arm's length. Okay? Love to say more about that. Number three, honor the elders of Mount Vernon. Honor the elders of Mount Vernon. Now, when, why in the world am I saying this? Yes, our ability to meet as a church has been curtailed. It's basically, for now, boiled down to this one service that we are live casting, both into another room and into a few homes uh, scattered around the city. Because of this, the elders of Mount Vernon decided to divide the church into what we're calling shepherding groups a group of Mount Vernon members with an elder assigned to each group. Now, our goal wasn't to keep you from reaching out to any elder that you might be particularly friendly with or fond of. I mean, by all means, 
do that. Take advantage of the relationships that God has given you. But it's simply to recognize that we're living in extraordinary days, and some of you cannot gather with us right now, and we want to make sure that you are being exhorted to follow Jesus every day, and as elders, we feel a special responsibility to shepherd the flock. And because it's particularly hard to do that right now, we went ahead and divided up Mount Vernon Baptist Church into a few shepherding groups. We may reach out to you with a phone call or an email or a text. Most of our elders, and not one elder has spoken to me about this, so this is not coming from a complaint for any of our elders. But I just want you, brothers and sisters, to know that most of our elders are not in the paid employee of the church. They're eldering, they're doing, if you will, on their own dime, at night, in between assignments, in between caring for things that they need to care for. They are doing this because they love you, and even more because they love God, and they want to honor the responsibility God has given them to shepherd the flock. Be thankful to them and honor them by responding to their emails or their texts or their phone calls. Give them a call back. Reply. It doesn't have to be a long reply. Thank you for reaching out. I appreciate you. I'm doing well. I look forward to catching up more later. A simple reply. Help us to shepherd you because we are shepherding you with the zeal of Hebrews 3.13 on our hearts. Honor the elders. Fourth, join a church. This is a strange time to say this. It is hard to get to know churches right now. I understand that. But I feel compelled to say this because never in all of my years of ministry, going back to 1996, have I been more thankful for church membership. It is during this pandemic that I have been more thankful to know who the members of my church are than ever, ever before. And if you're not a member of a church or if you're not attending the church that you are a member of. I ask you to align your membership with your attendance so that the shepherds who see you the most are freed up to shepherd you the best. So join a church the moment you can. Number five, pursue disciple-making. We all need people in our lives personally, regularly, and deliberately helping us grow in Christ-likeness. And the virus doesn't make any of this any less important. And maybe you are needing someone to pour into. More often than not, as I do new membership interviews, as as I meet with members of Mount Vernon, what I hear is, I really need someone to pour into me. I really need an older person, spiritually more mature, to pour into me. And maybe you don't know where to begin, all right? Our own Dustin Butts has prepared a couple of guides to disciple-making. Consider it disciple-making in a box. Just add water. Kidding about the water. All right. One guide is going to walk you through one-to-one disciple-making. Very practical. We can't take the hard work out of it. But Dustin, it's excellent. He's going to walk you through getting involved, finding a one-on-one discipling relationship. Now, the other guide walks you through forming a small, small group, right? Maybe three to five believers. If you want that guide, reach out to Dustin. Dustin Butts at mvbchurch.org. 
O-R-G. And he will gladly email out that guide to you. And we want to make this as easy as possible. Right, that was, I think, number five. Number six, as we end this morning, I want you to be encouraged. If you are a Christian, God has given you absolutely everything you need from his word and through his spirit to personally, regularly, and deliberately help another believer grow in Christ-likeness. God would not make disciple-making essential to the ministry of the church and then leave us ill-equipped to actually do it. And I know for some of you, this kind of relationship building can seem strange, and I just want you to be encouraged. As much as I'm exhorting you right now to make this a part of your ministry, I'm so encouraged, not only because God has equipped you to do it, but because I'm seeing so many of you do it already. Every day, as long as it is called today, so that our hearts will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, let us exhort one another. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for the ministry of the local church. We thank you for the reality that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church and for the means you have ordained of strengthening the church, which is the one another gospel ministry of men and women saved and committed to help others grow in Christ-likeness. Give us wisdom Fill us with joy. Help us to labor, recognizing that in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.